The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, relishing this crisp fall air we are experiencing in the DMV and the autumn colors that are just starting to go on display. If you're a longtime listener, you know this is my favorite season, and I've officially pulled out all my sweaters. This is my time to thrive. Today's guest comes to us with a wealth of experience analyzing the energy sector. Charles Kamenoff is an energy analyst, and he is going to talk to us about nuclear energy, how he made the transition from protesting nuclear reactors after Three Mile Island, which for our younger listeners, I'm just going to say use the Google, to uh, his current position that we need to keep um, operational plants online due to climate change. He will share his thoughts on the economics of nuclear power in the U.S. and the factors that today make nuclear power the alternative to fossil fuels. He's also into urban biking and believes in a carbon tax. So, listeners, I think you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Coming up next. Listeners, welcome back. So excited for today's conversation about nuclear energy with uh, energy expert Charles Komanoff, straight at us from New York, a person who reached out to us and said that he wanted to offer his expertise to you, our listeners on nuclear energy. Charles, welcome to the show. Hey, Chelsea. How are you? So uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, lead us into to this discussion about nuclear energy. Um, well, I, I jumped into the environmental movement around the time of Earth Day in 1970 mm-hmm. uh, from that generation. Um, and after some twists and turns from the late 70s into the early 90s, a period of about 15 years, my um, specialty was the economics of nuclear power in the United States. Um, and specifically, what was going wrong? Why were U.S. reactors uh, down and not producing power about 40% of the time? Why were their costs uh, exploding and escalating much faster than anything else? Um, and I um, actually achieved a modicum of fame in documenting that and speaking out about it. Um, I was one of the speakers at the um, May 6th, um, 1979 giant demonstration um, in Washington, D.C. after the Three Mile Island meltdown six weeks earlier. Um, And, um, you know, I I actually made a a pretty good living as an expert witness on behalf of state um, consumer agencies that were representing ratepayers that were trying to um, not get stuck with the entire cost escalation bill from super expensive nuclear power plants. 
Um, and uh, I kind of left that area beginning in the mid um, 80s and began doing other things, including getting deeply involved in urban bicycling advocacy, which is something I'm still um, involved in. I'm one of the architects of the congestion pricing uh, proposal for New York City. And I co-founded and run the small nonprofit called the Carbon Tax Center, which um, advocates for putting a stiff, a, a robust and steadily rising price on carbon emissions in the United States. Um, so I, I'm not really in the nuclear arena at all, but mm -hmm. I can't help noticing um, the discourse. And um, I guess I jumped back in a couple of years ago, uh, criticizing um, too late the closure of the Indian Point nuclear power complex about 40 miles north of me in the uh, distant New York City suburbs, um, and then uh, speaking out against the closure of Diablo Canyon um, on the Pacific coast of California. And I think that my voice was one of a number, along with Whole Earth Catalog guru Stuart Brand in persuading California Governor Newsom to break the deal that would have shut Diablo beginning next year. And I think stopping Diablo from being closed is an, is an excellent thing. Um, and I don't really have a strong position on expanding nuclear power, but I do have some opinions about um, how people who are pro-nuclear should be thinking about um, how to position themselves going forward. That's a really interesting background. Obviously, we are very pro-carbon tax here. So hearing that you um, support a robust price on carbon in the U.S., so do we. Uh, we happen to think it should be revenue neutral and border adjustable as well. Um, but some of these economics around nuclear power are interesting. And, you know, we believe in the free market. So if the free market isn't there for new nuclear power plants, which I don't think it will be absent a price on carbon, then there does become this question of what do we do with our existing nuclear resources? And, you know, I, I think probably the most famous example, not in the U.S., but abroad is if you look at um, the decision that Germany made with nuclear, with respect to nuclear power and now finds itself beholden to natural gas that's produced in Russia and sort of scrambling, right? Because instead they they decided to not pursue a nuclear power agenda there. So I think there are a lot of little, uh, you know, to me, it's it's an energy issue. It's an economic issue. It's definitely a health issue. I understand people's concerns about um, meltdowns and so forth. Although I hear plenty of people say that they're safe, that what happened at Three Mile Island was supposed to happen, right? That the systems responded the way that they should have. Uh, I was a child at that point, so I wasn't really following the news on the day-to-day. -day. But I think there are a lot of interesting dynamics. And then, of course, what to do with the waste. And and some of these conversations become really personal because I understand the state of Nevada does not want to be our our dumping ground for nuclear waste, understandably. But we would have to have something, someplace, we have to have someplace um, to put it and something to do with it. So curious for all of your thoughts on everything I just said, just all of that. Well, um, let's start with the easy issue, which is um, the need to keep the existing U.S. reactors um, online, um, which they are doing an excellent job of uh, of doing by themselves. Mm -hmm. But 
um, some of them, like, you know, Indian Point mentioned earlier, um, have been shut down because of what I think are at this point really mistaken um, and almost climate suicidal um, dogmatic objections that um, might have had some currency 40 or 50 years ago, but in the face of the climate crisis, um, shutting down existing well, well operated and functional nuclear power plants is totally nuts. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of uh, nuts for the simple um, reason that, um, you know, let's say, um, well, let, let's keep it forward looking and let's say that uh, California would have shut down the Diablo Canyon plants. That would mean that the next batch or big batches of uh, carbon-free wind and solar that California would be bringing on, instead of those new green resources displacing and pushing out fossil fuels, which is what we need them to be doing, instead they would be taking the place of an existing, robust and reliable non-carbon source of electricity, namely the Diablo Canyon plant. And sorry, the same new wind and solar, um, at least for a while, it can't do both things at once. It can't uh, displace Diablo Canyon and at the same time push fossil fuels out of the grid. And what it's going to have to be doing is the first and not the second. Um, And I'll go further and say that some of my erstwhile friends um, in the California electricity advocacy sector, like at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and I've talked to them about, about this, they are stuck in a 1970s or 80s paradigm, which uh, says, and, and they will say this to me, I even checked in with them before I sat down and wrote the first of several articles for The Nation magazine, urging Diablo Canyon be kept online. And they said, well, Charlie, you know, you've fought for wind and solar and energy efficiency and conservation your entire adult life. That's how you live your life. And that's the policy that you fought for. And so, you know, that we can bring on, say, more energy efficiency more cheaply than the incremental running cost of keeping Diablo Canyon uh, up to date and up to speed and paying all the staff and and et cetera. So why are you proposing to uh, keep Diablo Canyon operating? And what I had to say to them, and they had no answer to this, is that as long as we can keep Diablo Canyon running for a price uh, that is less than what we consider the social cost of carbon to be. Um, and, you know, the official U.S. number is now, what is it, $150 or $200 per ton of CO2? And that's that's a, almost certainly an understatement. Well, it costs less than that to keep the Apple Canyon running. And since the name of the game with climate is to squash and squelch and eliminate every source of CO2 that we can at a lesser cost than the damage from that additional ton of carbon dioxide. We should be doing it. So sorry, guys. Sorry, my former allies, (laughs) anti-nuclear everything. You're you're stuck in a 50-year-old frame. Well, Um, and I think that that nimbyism is alive everywhere too. Right now, you have people that don't want the um, offshore wind turbines because they're afraid they're going to obstruct their views of the coastline. And I've heard people say they don't want the uh, agrivoltaics, the solar arrays on, on farmland, which are could be really helpful for the ag industry as well as 
you know, letting farmers, which have been, who have been resistant to efforts to control carbon emissions, help them be part of the solution because they, you know, are an eyesore. So the, the eyesore thing, the fear of, of meltdown, these are real feelings that people have. But when you do put them up against the context of what we're facing with the climate crisis, there has to be a nimbleness of your in your thinking. Oh, I, I like that nimble over nimby. Um, I'm yeah. gonna like, maybe make that <laughs> uh, my my mantra. Um, and by the way, as we speak, I uh, am urging. I wrote this past summer um, a couple of op eds for Long Island, New York um, newspapers, um, urging the um, the expedited construction of the huge numbers of offshore wind. Uh, farms that have been proposed for the Atlantic Ocean off of Long Island uh, in sort of barely in distant view of my hometown of Long Beach, Long Island, where I grew up. And I have even been drawing on the fact that I grew up there. I don't live there anymore. I do live in New York City. But like, I'm trying to keep faith with what I was urging 40 or 50 years ago, solar, wind and energy efficiency. The thing is that we need those things in addition to not instead of continuing to operate our existing nuclear plants. But let's pivot yeah. to the issue of new plants because that's the thing that's trickier. And I mm-hmm. have some, I guess, advice for um, those of you, and this would include Republican mm-hmm. um, and others who want to see new generations of nuclear power coming online. And what I uh, have done is uh, I, I've got sort of four factors that have changed. I'm sure there are more, but for me, four key factors that are potentially very different now looking forward than they were in the 70s and 80s, the period that I studied and made my reputation on in chronicling and quantifying and explaining how nuclear power got priced out of any sort of economic feasibility. So I'd like to sort of run through Yeah, run through those, please. Well, the first and sort of the easiest, uh, and you know this as well as I, is that the um, U.S. nuclear power plants, which back in the day struggled to average 60% of operability called capacity factor, they're now clocking close to 90%, Mm -hmm. um, you know, 85, 90, some of them even more, the 90%. And not only is that um, really powerful in terms of improving the economics of uh, of building uh, new nuclear plants as well as operating the ones we have, it also signifies a maturity or maturation of the technology and the governance of the technology. You know, Chelsea, uh, I'll be honest with you, 40 and 50 years ago, um, it was fun to laugh at the nuclear power industry for its failure to keep uh, it's expensive reactors and very visible. They were all in the kind of political and media spotlight to keep them online. Well, they've kind of solved that problem. And I think that changes the dynamics a lot. So that's one one change. Uh, a second is a, a kind of distance from 1945. And why do I say 1945? Well, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and the Oliver Stone film that we've all seen, Nuclear Now, mm-hmm. um, was quite profound in its opening sequences about how the trauma um, and the guilt of um, incinerating and uh, poisoning, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in in, in Japan, 
how that sort of redounded um, and affected people like me. I'm in that generation that was proud to be anti-nuke because it was seen as pro-justice, uh, very progressive, and the right thing to do. I could go on and on about that. But we are really far away from that now. And it is not uh, a kind of given that younger progressive people, people you know, younger than, say, 50 and especially younger than 25, have that reaction. Um, I even sort of met a young woman at the um, September 17th march against fossil fuels in New York City who uh, who volunteered to me. I didn't sort of ask her. Well, well and she said, well, I'm pro-solar, pro-wind and pro-nuke. And I said, oh, interesting. Why are you pro-nuke? How can I not be because of the, the carbon impact? So that's that's second. And actually, I'm sort of overlapping with the third, which is that nuclear power for all practical purposes is a carbon-free source of electricity. You know, back in the 1950s, the enrichment of nuclear fuel to make uranium reactor worthy uh, consumed huge amounts of electricity. Well, there are new technologies that do that and that do it with very little electricity. I don't have to persuade you. You know that as well as I do. And yet some of my old anti-nuclear buddies will simply not countenance hearing that the nuclear fuel cycle at this point is a very low carbon endeavor and that from cradle to grave, nuclear power is about as low carbon as wind and solar. In other words, from a climate standpoint, nuclear power is green. So that's the third factor. Where energy optimists and climate realists stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. The fourth factor is the possibility that new designs will insulate um, future nuclear power plants from the kind of punishing and relentless cost escalation that befell them in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And we can sort of talk about that. It's not necessarily a given. But if I were pro-nuke, if I were going to be putting a lot of work into promoting nuclear power. And I'm not sure I'm going to do that because, you know, urban bicycling advocacy needs me. I have a lot of expertise (laughs) in that, believe it or not. And the carbon pricing fight needs me and congestion Mm -hmm. pricing in New York City needs me. But if I were going to be uh, devoting a lot of my uh, remaining professional life to um, promoting a new generation of nuclear power plants, I would be focusing on the SMRs, the small modular reactors, because being able to stamp um, new reactors uh, to to stamp them out, not stamp them out. Uh, that's not the wrong thing, but to 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 put them um, to manufacture them in factories and simply barge them uh, to the site, not have them be altered, and being able to put down one, two, three, many of them in sequence and keyed to the needed um, increase in demand in the electrical grid, which is going to be increasing as transportation and heating and build of uh, buildings, et cetera, all become um, electrified. Yeah. Well, we can time them better. And and the sheer fact that the surface to volume ratio is so much greater uh, for small uh, modular reactors, which makes heat dissipation easier, which should in any sort of rational regulatory regime. And I know that's not a given, but it at least makes it, it um, possible to talk about Uh, being able to contain costs or at least not have uh, a 
punishing series of design changes during the construction process, which is a big part of what killed nuclear power economically back in the day. So those four factors, the high uh, reliability, the distance from 1945, uh, the carbon-free nature of nuclear power especially, and the potential for new designs to allow cost containment would make me um, really optimistic that a new generation of nuclear power could be brought online at a reasonable cost. Well, I'm as you have noted, we have to do something. And we didn't even talk about the increased electrification of the grid as people move to um, EVs, for example. I already have friends in my very middle income bracket network who have charging stations in their homes, right? So suddenly they're shifting from buying gas to fueling their vehicles with electricity. Um, I have solar panels on my house, but I don't have batteries, right? So I can't save the power, but um, we all have a bazillion things to plug in (laughs) that takes electricity between our phones and our computers and our watches. And so we are, you know, I I grew up in the seventies and I remember my mom was huge on turn off the light when you leave a room and put a sweater on if you're cold. So here I am in my office, I have a sweater on listeners. You cannot see me uh, because I was cold. And every time I leave a room, I just turn a light off. But that alone is not going to save us. Like we continue to demand energy use and we are not a nation that is accustomed to brownouts or blackouts or take this time to, you know, when we have hot days here in DC, I get a call from Pepco that says, consider not using your dishwasher or your dryer or et cetera, et cetera, your major appliances between these at peak hours. And, you know, if that's the kind of message that everyone's going to get every day, that's just not sustainable for what the way we have become accustomed to live our lives. Well, I, I'm going to dissent a little bit um, uh, on on that. And, you know, from 2005, almost 20 years ago, to um, last year. Hey, the, 2005 is not almost 20. Oh, it is almost 20. Yeah, years. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Um, U.S. Total U.S. electricity usage barely increased. It averaged something like three-tenths of a percent per year. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as you sort of know from the history books, and I lived it, um, in the 50s and 60s, U.S. electricity use was go- was increasing at an average of 6%, 7% a year, doubling every decade, you know, on and on. Um, and what allowed that to happen, well, some of it, unfortunately, was the offshoring of U.S. manufacturing to, you know, China and Vietnam, you know, et cetera. But much more of it was the increased efficiency of the U.S. economy and all of these this uh, the the digital devices and computers, et cetera, yeah, they do have to be plugged in, but they enabled big reductions in electricity use in commercial buildings, in factories, even in residential buildings, because of the ability to manage things more efficiently. So um, we really did stabilize U.S. electricity use, and that even more than fracking and the replacement of coal-fired power with natural gas is what enabled the U.S. electricity sector to be the one part of our economy that did considerably decarbonize from the 2005 base, reducing carbon uh, emissions by almost a third, a real success story. Um, But what you said about the other stuff is absolutely spot on. Transportation, especially our vehicles, or your vehicles living in New York. I don't have to own a car. Um, and um, 
and uh, the heating of buildings, you know, heat pumps, switching. And that's a big switch, too, because back in the 60s and 70s, electric resistance heating was a real bete noire um, of people like me who wanted electricity used to not be increasing all that rapidly because it was being powered primarily by coal and also by petroleum. Um, but now the advent of heat pumps, which are super efficient. So, yes, um, we are going to need more electricity and as much i mean chelsea i don't know if like in a year you will talk to somebody as pro wind and pro solar as me um as much of a bicycle commuter as i am i ride a bike to get from a to b pretty much every day of the year here in new york city um but i despair of um the ability to bring green energy you know solar and wind online and to hook it up and wire it from the distant places into the load centers as rapidly as possible and not just because of nimbys whom i absolutely despise but simply the logistics of making that big of a change in our economy um that quickly it's really daunting and i don't know if we're up to the task so um i'm skeptical i think the jury is still out on the ability of um solar and wind um and nominal amounts of hydro to do it all by themselves well i would love to before i let you go pivot a little bit to your urban biking advocacy i will say that um you know i live in an urban area outside dc probably about five miles from the capital as the crow flies if I want to drive to the Capitol, that could take me anywhere between 17 minutes and an hour, right? Depending on traffic. I tend to take the Metro because I am lucky enough to live on a Metro line. And that's an easy uh, way for me to get in the city where I don't have to pay for parking. I almost always have the train to myself because fewer and fewer people in this area, and I blame Uber for that, are using our public transportation system. But two things really struck me. One was that during the pandemic, when we were in that period kind of post strict quarantine where restaurants were starting to open and they needed outside venues and they were closing off streets. And we were doing that kind of European thing where you had the the cafe tables and the whole blocks were closed off and it was lovely, lovely. And then I went to Europe to, I went to Germany to visit my son on a study abroad trip. And he was, he did his, um, this time last year, he was in Germany doing study abroad And I went to visit him in the town that he was in. The whole city center was completely closed off to vehicle traffic. They had trams, they had people on bikes, they had walkers. And we were just thinking, gosh, like, this is such a missed opportunity. People now that coronavirus, you know, at least the heavy part of the pandemic is over, we're going to keep getting COVID and hopefully not people aren't going to die like they were in the beginning. But we've gone back to indoor dining and we've given the streets back to vehicles and I think it was a missed opportunity to really change, especially how we run our urban centers and to make them less gas guzzling <laughs> emitting centers of commerce. Yeah, um, nothing to uh, dispute in that. I'm just nodding my head in, in total agreement. Um, you know, I, I will one. I mean, there's so many differences between Europe and the U.S. And, and in that comparison, we do not come off very well. And But one of them is that the national governments fund public transportation systems. They fund those trams and subways 
and buses. Um, here, that's really not the case. And so I lean much more toward a pricing solution for transportation. Um, and the twin benefits of congestion pricing for a place like New York City and maybe potentially Washington, D.C. as well, um, is A, it cuts down on traffic gridlock. Uh, so that driving is less stressful and more reliable and dependable and less damaging in terms of, of costing everybody lost time. Uh, but B, with congestion pricing, you want most or many of the car trips that are being made today to continue to be made so that they can be told, T-O-L-L-E-D, and that ka-ching um, from the congestion toll can help fund mass transit so that your metro and my MTA can be the world-class, reliable, and dignified systems that we need them to be. Um, but yeah, we need, there, there's so many changes um, that we need. Um, and, you know, the, the a carbon tax would be a tailwind to all of them. So maybe next time we can make that the center <laughs> of our discussion. Well, Charles, it's been really wonderful talking to you and uh, getting a little educated on new nuclear power generation and just uh, chatting about the energy paradigm uh, at large. So I would love to have you back sometime for a further conversation and me too. Uh, wish you best of luck with your efforts to uh, convert New York to operating on bicycles. Bikes and subways. Bikes and subways. Are you a young conservative who's passionate about the environment? Introducing Green Tea Party Radio, the show that blends conservative solutions with environmental advocacy. Hey there, I'm Hannah. And I'm Zach. I'm Katie. Join us every week as we discuss how conservatives can champion energy independence, tackle climate change, and create clean energy sector jobs, all while staying true to our values. Get ready to pour the tea and join the Green Tea Party. Tune in and engage with thought-provoking discussions that matter to you. Subscribe today and visit greenteapartyradio.com for more information. All right, Price Atkinson here, wrapping up another episode of the Eco Right Speaks as Chelsea Henderson is unavailable here for this wrapping up and recording. But she'll be back with me next week. Have no fear. But want to thank Charles Kominoff for joining us and being our guest this week here on the Eco Right Speaks. So once again, thanks to Charles Kominoff for his time and for sitting down and having that conversation and chat with Chelsea Henderson. Want to shout out, shout out some of our new members this week, Aiden F. in South Dakota, Tammy S. in New Jersey, Jacob V. in Pennsylvania, and Elizabeth K. in North Carolina, rounding out by Josh R. in Washington, D.C. So appreciate them for standing with us. If you want to join us and stand with us, we would love to have you, especially if you are a conservative right of center, please republican.org forward slash join. It takes mere seconds. We tell you that all the time, but we promise it really does just take a few seconds. And there is power in numbers. We don't spam you. We send out poll questions. We send out notifications about events and the ever popular week in review that Chelsea sends out every single Friday. You will get that delivered to your inbox. But republicin.org forward slash join. I want to shout out, speaking of shout outs, a couple of event programming shout outs on my end of things. Uh, I want to shout out David Darmafall at the University of South Carolina. 
Kendra Hamilton at Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina, and Paul Friedman at the University of Virginia had a series of events at all three schools and just want to thank uh, the fine folks at the University of South Carolina, Presbyterian College, and the University of Virginia, uh, where Bob went back home. Obviously, he's an alum of the law school there at UVA. So really, really appreciate everybody helping to make those events happen this week uh, and last week. So thank you once again. If you would be interested in having a member of our team, Bob Inglis, somebody else, as part of one of your events that you're planning that you've got going locally, looking for a guest speaker, just give me a shout, price at republican.org. I would love to talk with you, connect with you to see what we can do. We do in person, we do virtual. We would love to partner with you uh, in trying to reach other fellow conservatives because that is the name of the game. They're the ones that need to be reached to hear the message and be converted. But want to thank uh, Chelsea Henderson, my esteemed colleague, for once again bringing you that interview with Charles Komenoff. Uh, great to hear from him this week. Again, she will be back next week here on another episode of the Eco Right Speaks, which you can get on Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Every Tuesday, we bring you a new episode of the Eco Right Speaks. So hit that subscribe button wherever it is, however it is you listen to your podcast every single week and you will have it delivered right to your device, laptop, whatever it is. And if you want to go to our website, you can do that too, republican.org forward slash podcast. We have every single episode right there as we are in season seven, barreling toward the end. And yes, we will be bringing you season eight starting in early 2024. But that's going to do it for Chelsea Henderson. I'm Bryce Atkinson. Thanks for listening to us this week. And we will be back once again next week with a new episode on Tuesday. Have a great week. Have a great weekend. Happy Halloween, everybody, as it's just around the corner. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader. 